Welcome to this week's Two Men in the Middle. This is where two men in the middle of the country get together and talk about politics, current events, and other fun stuff. I'm Craig Huey. I'm Brandon Kinnig. So, Brandon, in, in warm-up, it's been a lot of, a lot of, a lot of talk about the, uh, the uh, infrastructure bill that passed. Did that pass Saturday or Friday night? Uh, Friday night, yes. I, I, I do recall it was Friday night, I believe. So months and months of legislative gridlock and vote wrangling, and, and and finally this passed. But again, this was something that could have easily passed months ago Yeah. Um, if we didn't have this insistence that it be tied to that human infrastructure social spending bill, which is really what complicated everything because you had two senators yeah. that were unwilling to vote for that bill as it was. And just to set that groundwork, this is the this is the the hard infrastructure bill. This is the roads, bridges, broadband, yes. ports. This is a trillion, one point two trillion, something like that. Yeah, most significant uh, infrastructure transportation spending we've had in decades in this country, and and we do need it. We have aging infrastructure in we many do. places. Uh, there, there's a lot that's going to go for roads, bridges, as you mentioned, also um, Amtrak. Um, also, um, uh, uh, to develop um, more fuel efficient vehicles. I mean, it covers every aspect. There's some climate of change kind of stuff in here. Yep, that's in it as well. And I think it's a great example of bipartisanship. We had 13 House Republicans that crossed the aisle to support this. Uh, four of the progressive uh, Democrats have voted against it since it wasn't paired with the social spending bill. Is that? And- is, is that the usual suspects, AOC, Rashida Tlaib, Ilhan Omar, Cory Bush? Yes. Okay. So usual suspects there. And then, you know, let's not forget the Senate had already passed this a long time ago. With 19 with Republicans. With 19 senators. Republicans. So, I mean, again, very significant. You're talking about almost half of the Republican caucus. So I think most Americans would say th- this is a good bill and this is something that, that we needed. I don't think many folks are going to argue against this piece of, of legislation. The things that I've heard argued the most is, where did these 13 Republicans come from? And if these 13 Republicans were gettable on this bill, which they obviously were because they voted for it, why did we have to sit for three months? If, if, if it was uncoupled from the human infrastructure bill and the two were seen as completely two independent moving parts, why have we sat here for three months messing around with these four or five handful of, of progressives when we just should have made our pitch to the 13 Republicans ago? I- Great question. So the decision to uncouple it just happened as a reaction to the elections in New Jersey and Virginia, right? So you had. Do you think that's what did it? Oh yeah. I mean, from what I've read, um, House Speaker Nancy Pelosi made the decision to put this bill forward as a standalone based on that happening, um, and take chances, knowing she was going to lose a few Dems, but um, pretty confident she'd pick up those Republicans. So you think if McAuliffe would have won? They don't bring that to a vote? I, I mean, I think they could have still been trying to couple it with the social spending bill, I, and we'd still be debating. That. Because that's what we've been doing for the last several months. And for now, initially, I get it, right? They thought that if coupling it together was their best opportunity to get the social spending bill across mm-hmm. the finish line as well, pairing a bill that didn't have as much 
uh, support with a very popular bill. Uh, you know, that happens with a lot of legislation that's full of all kinds of stuff. And then, you know, senators and members of the House vote um, on it, even though they don't like aspects of it, because on par, it, they uh, support m- more of it than they do um, other parts. But in this case, that strategy wasn't working, and they never pivoted or found a way out of that. Instead, we just kept playing this game where let's try to figure out the mind of minds of cinema and mansion yeah. and what they'll support, what they won't. And it was just back and forth, back and forth that never I mean, that's a great point. Changed. Why Why has we spent so much time spinning our wheels on what Kristen Cinema and Joe Manchin are thinking instead of going out and recruiting Republicans to 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 get the first bill passed. There's been so much emphasis on the second soft or human infrastructure bill and all of the all of the gyrations that the Democrats are going through to try to convince Manchin and Cinema to vote on this. Why what have we gotten out of that? Where was especially if there was a if three months ago there was a bipartisan bill to be had or deal to be had in the House on this bill? That just seems like an absolute fail on the Democrats' part that they waited the three months messing around with the progressives to try to get this done. Well, yeah, agreed. And I, I mean, I assume that there would have been some Republican votes there from the very beginning because seeing how lopsided it was in the Senate, you know, I you just know from um, history and from political geography that there are, you know, it's a dwindling number of districts, but there's still a small number of swing marginal districts and Republicans who represent those districts can't afford to not support something like that, um, especially in in districts where it's going to have a tangible impact on their communities. New Jersey is a good example. Nine or 10 of the House Republicans who voted for it came from New Jersey. And there's a lot of transportation impact in New Jersey. They have mass transit. They have major arteries and bridges. And they're in the right bedroom of New York City, basically. So they have the metropolitan backdrop. So again, I you know I, it, it did it surprise me that there were votes that came from the House. I just intuitively always thought that from the beginning, and I'm pretty sure the Democrats knew that too. But again, they made a calculated decision to try to pair these bills together. But the failure was they never realized that that wasn't working. They never took the they stepped never away and pivoted, yeah. and that cost them you know in the elections. And so that finally is when they pivoted. So basically, thirteen Republican House members made a decision that they could if they if they voted for this bill it would help them in the general election and they felt confident enough they could beat a primary challenge yeah because i think that was the threat to republicans if you if you break rank and if you vote for this you're going to get a primary challenger and i think these i think there were 9 or 10 of them out of new jersey basically just said if the if the primary ta- challenger is matt gates or marjorie taylor green or madison cawthorn or somebody straight out of maga uh, 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 I can beat that. If I vote for this bill, if I don't for this bill, I know I'm going to lose the general. Right. But if I do vote for it, and if the person they primary with is somebody straight out of MAGA world, I feel confident that I, I can beat back that primary challenge. Right. And so that was ultimately the calculus that was made. And uh, uh, Congressman Don Bacon represents Omaha, uh, Nebraska's 2nd District. So that's the Omaha area. That's that one little strip of blue, like one in little the, strip of blue. Red. And that was the district that went for uh, Biden yeah. in last year's presidential election and went for Obama back in 2008, but don't, not 2012. Don't they have like one electoral vote or something? Well, so Nebraska is one of two states with Maine that divides their presidential electoral votes by congressional district. Yeah. And so that's how they award them. And that's how 
Trump was able to get a blue elect or sorry, red electoral vote out of Maine, which is deeply blue statewide. And the same with Nebraska, yeah. even though it went for Trump, their Omaha, Omaha basically voted for Biden. Yeah. And so he got that yeah. electoral vote. So, but the, that Omaha based district, uh, Bacon only won it by like 4,000, some votes. It's always, uh, extremely close in every election. And he was making the rounds on radio and local media in Omaha. And he said, look, this is going to hurt me in the primary, but it would hurt me even worse in the general election. I can't afford to not vote for it in the general. He's like, I can hold back primary opponent and I'll run on my record and defend it. Uh, and you know, and so he's more confident being able to do that on the primary side. That's what these 13 decided ultimately i think if you're if the primary opponent is marjorie taylor green <laughs> you're okay yeah if the primary opponent is glenn youngkin just a sane normal uh traditional republican who's talking about local issues you might have a problem and i think they're making the calculation that in the primary their opponent's going to skew much more towards maga than they are a, a middle-of-the-road centrist Republican candidate. Well, and I don't understand if you're running like this in the primary, um, you know, and, and you're right. I mean, it's going to be, in the general, to be a centrist in many of these districts. Um, but if you triangulate the issue in the primary, if you could criticize saying, well, you know, President Trump supported an infrastructure bill sure. just like this. He tried to get one done. He tried for to get four it done, and, and you know, I was just supporting the legislation that he wasn't able to get done, and so it's just you know carrying that through now. So, I mean, again, I think that would be the way to handle that. That's um, a, that's such a great line, what you just said. Take what if this were Trump's bill? All Republicans would, would have voted. Oh, for absolutely, it. and so, those that voted against it this time would have been supporting it without hesitation. So the the Republicans are trying to punish these 13 people who, who voted for this. Which Strip again, them of is committee ridiculous. assignments and the yeah. like. Yeah, I mean, again, they won't punish, you know, Paul Gosar, who goes to oh, neo-Nazi God. rallies and puts out videos. you see the little video he put out? Yeah, yeah, like, you know, violent videos against What's his wrong with opponents. that guy? Is he just a straight-up idiot? Is that his problem? Just a lack of – he don't have enough brain cells to rub together? Or is he truly an evil person? Well, I mean, he, so if you look at his background and statements he's made, like, I mean – it's hard to deny that he's not a racist. I mean, straight up. Yeah, I, mean, I think he, so. He attends as many of these conferences and rallies. He talks about the dwindling white population, the danger that is. And yeah. He's traveled to, like, Austria and met with, like, far-right neo-Nazi parties. Always like, good. He's, he's done all this stuff. So he's t- kind of taken the mantle from uh, uh, Steve King, you know, who used to, from yeah. Iowa, who was um, that character who then was forced out and think about that that wasn't that long ago but you know once upon a time steve king did the same type of stuff and he faced rebuke by his colleagues a censor in the house he lost his primary the nrcc voted uh or supported financially a primary opponent against him but yet just this many years later you have somebody like goser who is supported by the house leadership by kevin mccarthy who doesn't face any uh consequences for what he says and does um, and that's striking here because, right, I mean, you have um, Republicans that are threatening these 13 for just crossing the aisle and voting on a bipartisan piece of legislation that the entire party supported yeah. merely two years ago. Uh, but, yeah, we're not going to vote, you know, to strip committee assignments from somebody who's an avowed racist. And I guess the the idea of, hey, you vote what you need to do to win this seat. I don't think the Republicans are playing that game anymore. No, I, I think the Republicans think they're going to. I think they, if you ask Kevin McCarthy, how many seats do you win in 2022, the front of the Republicans, I bet he would say over 50. 
I don't think yeah. they're worried on the edges about what their what the number is going to be when they take control back of the the house in in 2022. No, because they control more of the redistricting than yeah. Democrats do, so they're going to benefit automatically from that. So they they aren't worried. Again, barring some type of uh, you know external event um, that we can't see or something that would really kind of shake up you know the politics as we know it, like. Republicans are on track to take back the House. I mean, yeah. when, you, when Democrats have a three-seat majority, there's yeah. no room to maneuver. If they had a 50-seat majority, it would be a little bit different. There would be the possibility for them to hang on to the majority by a couple of seats, but they don't have that. Yeah, I don't. I just find it. I, I find it a bad political strategy when you're basically going to tell your members of your own party that you will punish them by stripping off their their committee memberships in the house which is really what the house that's yeah. their form of power if you don't have a committee assignment you're really there doing doing yeah, nothing yeah you can't almost. do anything ask marjorie taylor green right. about that that you're going to take that level of punishment to them for voting for a bill that's going to help get them reelected and it's the same identical bill your party's been trying to pass for for years. That just seems to make zero sense. Well, at it's all. tone deafness, and it's just it, again, this is something that would have never been uh, considered or contemplated even a couple of years ago. But it's where we are politically now. I mean, I, I cannot imagine this happening under Paul Ryan or John Boehner no. as leader of the Republicans. But you know, it is in the Trump era under McCarthy. And I understand saying, "Hey, we're we're punishing you." Because you took the political leverage we had away, or or you, you took away the leverage from the progressives, which is really how we're trying to paint the Democrats right now. Because with the the only leverage the the uh, well, in order to get the, the the second bill passed with the linkage together. The, the the four progressives didn't want to vote for this because they wanted to make sure the 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 human infrastructure bill passed. With this bill passed, they really have no more leverage anymore. Right. So with this, this just throws more on onto Mansion and Cinema. It, it, I guess what I'm trying to to talk through is we're right back to where where we, we were. were. That and if Mansion decides whatever magic number we hit, I guess he'll vote for it, and I guess Cinema might vote. Yeah. For something so nothing too. has changed as Nothing's far as that. I mean, it does complicate the calculus for the social spending bill. Um, and I've said all along, and I still say this, there are aspects of that bill that are popular uh, alone, you know, uh, just uh, yeah. on that by themselves. Um, the Democrats would be better advised to strip that bill down even further and pass some of these as standalone items where I think they could build that support and, and get them through. Uh, but you know, the problem is they started so big yeah. and trying to cram everything into that bill. It was a wish list of their priorities. And then they started, uh, parsing it down when they realized that the votes weren't there to begin with. Uh, but it would still need to be parsed down even further to pass, I believe, under the I, current I think circumstances. That, I think that bill just dies a slow death. You I don't think, think they replace it with not, anything? No, I, I don't think so. I mean, I, I think, think they're still going to try. I think there's still going to be appetite because, again, I think they're reading the writing on the wall that they're not going to have any opportunity to try to pass anything like it after next November. So they are going to continue to try to move the needle as much as possible because the clock is ticking and there's no chance after So next Biden's election. sitting at an approval rating that's hovering somewhere around 40%, maybe even lower than that. Yeah, I think you it was 38% when got, I saw it. You just took a loss in Virginia that you shouldn't have, have, have taken. 
if, if, if McAuliffe just would have said nothing during that whole campaign, he probably would have won that seat. Yeah. If this isn't the signal for the Democrats to slow down and to take a little stock of where they're at, where the American people are, where Biden is, uh, if you still go headlong into let's get this build back better human infrastructure thing done now that you've got the, the, the hard infrastructure bill done, I just, I just think that's politically malpractice at that point. What, what's the advantage to Biden to get that bill done now? The build, the, the, infra- the human infrastructure, the build back better. I get it. It's part of his cornerstone of what, of what his administration is about. But really, what is the incentive anymore to throw your political chips behind that bill? I mean, there isn't any personal incentive or political incentive for him other than just codifying into law some of these Democratic wish list priorities sure. they've had for a long time. Although I think it would be better politically for them to pivot to a voting rights legislation and to strategize on that i agree from now until the next election because if they can move the needle on any aspect or aspects of that legislation that's going to benefit them politically more uh, as far as dividends go and give them the opportunity to work on legislation in the future more so than focusing on any other piece of legislation so brandon if i ever become president of the united states i'm gonna have a big manila folder and on that folder is going to be written when your ass is in trouble this is where you go. These are the things that when you need a quick three to five point bump in your, in your, your approval rating, or you need to appeal back to people once you've, if you want to change the narrative, that's when I go to this file. And it feels like Biden would be much better to drop the big build back better agenda and start picking off some of these smaller things that he can do to help gain back some, some goodwill. And then reassess after 2022. For example, the first thing in my, my, I need three to five points back on my approval rating, I didn't daylight savings time. I could have done that. (laughs) Seems like a no-brainer. Easy win. Everybody would would have absolutely cheered that. The second one is I'm pardoning everybody who has a federal marijuana nonviolent conviction. That's pretty simple. Good one. Let's do a third one. We're just taking pot off the schedule one list. Whatever states want to do, that's fine, but we're no longer considering it uh, a Schedule One drug. My point here being is there's all kinds of small little things that Biden could do. He could do these by executive order that would be attributed to him, and these would be positive. And it feels like where he's standing politically right now, that might be a better strategy than try to continue to hack on this Build Back Better bill with no real path to understand how are you going to get this passed and what what what's going to pass yeah because i still don't think mansion and cinema they're just dicking with numbers they just don't like the price tag yeah i don't think either one of them feels passionately about anything in that bill and they're certainly not championing anything in it so i don't know what their incentive is now that the big infrastructure bill is passed i think they just lose all all interest in it at this point yeah, I mean, the only thing is, I guess they both agreed on this funding mechanism, right? This capital gains-like tax, which is going to be— This wealth tax This thing? wealth tax, yeah. So, because they both came into agreement on that, sure, right? Sure, but that's like, Brandon, you and I agreeing on something horribly complicated that we have no idea how it's going to work. Yeah. Let's put this, this is like you and I agree teleporting would be better than driving somewhere. <laughs> now, we don't know how we're going to do that— Elon Musk sold $5 billion worth of his stock the other day. How does that impact that? Does he have to 
prorate that? How would the, the wealth? Yeah, tax, we don't know. Yeah, I understand they agreed to it, kind of a framework. And in concept, I've seen yeah. no, no idea of how to practically enforce that. And I did, I did, I just don't know how they're going to do it. So that's a big unknown. And as far as the actual cost of Build Back Better, that's still unknown as well because I think they had to send it to CBO to get yep. final numbers. That and, seems fair. And if the uh, those final numbers come back and they're at all higher than what Which has been forecast, be. then that's going to likely logjam the legislation yeah. further with you know moderate Democrats. So it's the the future. I mean, the the best thing you can say about it is the future of it is uncertain. There's probably components of it that might be able to be passed by themselves, but the bill as it exists now is a, you know, kind of grab bag bill is just not likely to get through. There's no real priorities in it. Like yeah, you said, it's just everything. And it's like, okay, if you if you can't get all of this, what can we get? And nobody seems to be able to answer that, that well, question. Well, and there's been this back and forth uh, on, you know, what to include, what not to include. So at different times during this whole debate – there's been items that have been dropped and then added back in. And so at any given point, it's confusing to me whether, you know, the final bill has family leave in it or not. At one oh. point it was inserted back in. So you can imagine if it's confusing to somebody like me who tries to follow this closely, yeah. the average person has no idea what's in the final There's package. no possible way you could do it. Yeah. There, there's no way if you just have a job and a family that you can invest enough time to truly understand no. what the Democrats are trying to do. Is Biden a legacy builder? Does his legacy and what people think of him and what his legacy um, is that impacting or driving any of this? Do you think? Uh, you know, I—I I mean, I, I think he wants to be remembered for some big things, and that's why, again, strategically, it would have helped him to um, work on I the infrastructure. I so hope that build. trade whistle comes through on the, on the podcast. <laughs> Uh, the joys of being close to a railroad, road. Uh, but yeah, I mean, I, I think he thinks about it. Um, I think it would behoove him to think about it more in terms of how he's handled some of the crises that have yeah. enveloped already, such as with Afghanistan. I mean, I think there's many of these things that, again, from a messaging standpoint, communication standpoint, being proactive and acknowledging failure, uh, unexpected things that happen while saying, you know, this is what we're going to do, which would have served him pretty well um you know so there's a lot of areas to work on and i mean a good one is just european ties are strained right now um not on the same level or degree by any means as they were under trump but for different reasons you know afghanistan Damn. caught european partners off guard the administration did it really proactively nope let them know about that so that's been um a thorny issue um it's i think it, parts of that relationship should get better uh, should be better now um, just this last week, the uh, United States began allowing foreign travelers back into the country. Yeah. Um, that was also a sticking point because many of the European countries, and I can speak from experience because I traveled to Europe a couple of weeks ago, had already started allowing Americans back in, but we had not started allowing yeah. them into our country. And, and Is that just slowness in our process? Yeah, that was that just done? bureaucracy. Okay. Yeah. Um, and as you can imagine, <laughs> I feel bad because Europeans are not complaining because um, now that they're getting here, the customs has been a nightmare because I'm they're not sure. prepared to handle the influx. Yeah. And so you have travelers that are coming here saying, well, they've had months. You know, we haven't been allowed into the country. Yeah. What were they doing for months? Why, yeah. Good question. But it, so there's those aspects. Uh, so, yeah, there's a lot to deal with. And, you know, it's going to have to be taken in small doses. But, um, you know, first and foremost, 
you know, COVID is kind of out of Biden's hands right now. You have the federal mandate and the legal challenges over that, and you have a vaccine that's commercially available. So that's it. I mean, Biden handled that to the degree that but, um, the availability is but there. But that's not how he messaged it. That's no. not what he told us he was going to do. He told us he was going to crush COVID. He was going to get rid of COVID. He never said we're going to manage to a phase where yeah. COVID is, is, is manageable. Right. And that, that's another big— That's a messaging failure because that's what Republicans are problem. using now and all of their messaging saying Absolutely. Biden promised to destroy and it's COVID. shooting at a target we were never going to hit. Yeah. What I don't understand is the night Biden gets elected, I think if you, you ask him, what president should you map to historically? For me, this is easy. You're, you're Eisenhower. We just came off this really traumatic experience in the pandemic. Pandemic's not, not World War II, it's but we all, we all kind of went through this very traumatic experience together, and we just need somebody to, to kind of make us feel a little bit better, slow things down, and shepherd us through this return to normalcy. Because yeah. Eisenhower's big thing was he was everybody's grandfather. Right. He played a lot of golf. He putzed around a little bit, never really yelled at anybody. <laughs> just he, he was there to kind of, hey, we just came off of World War II. Everybody is processing that experience differently. I'm just got, I'm not going to add anything to it. And I think that's what I thought Biden was going to but do. But Eisenhower, and, and I think that's a great point, um, Eisenhower is actually one of my favorite favorite presidents because he's i think vastly understated because of that period in history you know coming off the war how nice would it be to have a president that you could say one of his or her qualities is their ability to be humble and understated yeah because all that man did was win world war ii for us right i mean if anybody could have run around you know being mr big dick it would have been him and that's just not who he was but you know and he i mean you can basically say most of the 1950s he was president um, economic prosperity. Yeah. He oversaw the development of the highway system in America, was, which was transformative in terms of commerce and our ability as Americans to travel. So there were not any like huge, like big things that jump out in terms of managing a war or, um, you know, having to fix an economy coming out of depression. But there were some big things that did happen in the 50s, which charted the economic growth that we saw sure. um, through the 1960s. So, uh, yes, yeah, so I think that's an apt comparison because I think Biden would do well to look to Eisenhower in terms of what he was able to accomplish, what he's remembered for. Uh, and that's a legacy that he could emulate easily. I think, I think Eisenhower knew that the president reflected the tone of the country. Yeah. And the tone that he wanted to give off was self-confident. Uh, we've just accomplished that or been through this very big thing together and it's all okay. We're going to be okay. America's going to be okay. It's now time to move into that post-World War II era. We didn't know we were going to dominate quite the way we have, but he knew that what he really wanted to do was just calm America down. Yeah. It's a transitor- transition presidency. Yeah. Okay. And again, I've never... I wasn't around when Eisenhower was was president, but everything you read or see about him, he was mindful of that. And he gave that that aura off wherever he went. He was probably also one of the most introspective presidents. I read a book, and getting into a side note, uh, but I read a book about him in terms of um, how he handled McCarthy. You know, who Joe McCarthy rose to the scene yeah. in the 1950s and led the Red Scare and, um, and, and those 
political persecutions. But behind the scenes, Eisenhower was working with his staff to discredit and marginalize McCarthy yeah. and, and actually had a war room where they would have these meetings and like, what can we do to ensure he doesn't get reelected and like all of this. And, and Eisenhower's being one of the most introspective presidents. I, I find it fascinating because in Kansas, um, since he's a native son, we the Republican Party, the state party, has their Eisenhower gala every year. Yeah. And, of course, the state party has become more Trumpy. Eisenhower was a moderate back in the day. So when he ran for president, he was courted by both Democrats and Republicans and ran under a Republican uh, banner. Absolutely. But – so he was a moderate for his time, but especially today, like he would not be like near the Republican Party with the no. ten foot pole. And, and let's I feel pretty confident in saying that Eisenhower wouldn't be in the same room with Trump. No. He would meet this him was a guy that also warned say, about the military industrial again. complex. Yeah. And yeah. and and if you look at uh, you know, just his approach to issues and to compromise and you go through some of his famous quotes like None of those you would find in today's Republican Party. When the Allied Supreme Commander for World War II gives the industrial, you know, you better, better keep an eye on this, the military partnership with, with industry and capitalism, that should be a massive wake-up call. Oh, yeah. I mean, and it's as uh, relevant today as it was then, right? Even more relevant today. I mean, I can't tell you how many times over the past couple of decades I've seen his quote about the dangers of military industrial complex yeah. uh, referred to. Probably because once a year it pops yeah. up somewhere where somebody will tweet that out or to do it. So Biden, so the infrastructure bill, let's just, let, let's assume that, well, I don't want to make that assumption. I'm trying to figure out what's Biden's major course politically to get to the 2022 midterms. What What's on his mind? What is he trying to accomplish because he definitely wants to hold power in in the House and Senate if that's possible. Yeah, I don't think the House is possible anymore. The Senate, the Senate still may is. or may not be. Um, Democrats actually um, looking at the Senate map uh, dodged a bullet, had a break. Everyone referred to it. Uh, when uh, John Sununu, who was the popular former governor of New Hampshire, decided not to run for that Senate seat yeah. that's uh, held by the incumbent Democrat, uh, Maggie uh, Hassan. And I don't think Hogan's running in Maryland either. No. Um, so in terms of the seats they're defending, they look good. And there's actually some probability that they could pick up seats like in Pennsylvania. Yeah. Um, I'm trying to remember the other state. But there's a couple of seats. Like It, it is conceivable that they could come out um, losing the House, but picking off a few Senate seats to where they maybe have like a one seat Senate majority or possibly yeah. two. So that that is feasible. So that would be best outcome at this point. And to get there, Biden would need to lead our economy out of this uh, pandemic um, dysfunction, uh, be able to hopefully the supply chain issues will be in a better place by then. Is that his number one, you think? Economy, supply chain, Again, if, if we're trying to prioritize, what can he do to help the Democrats in, tw- in the midterms? Economy certainly feels like that's It feels like that would be right at the top, especially right now. I mean, there's inflation issues. I think we have the highest inflation we've had in 30 years. We have. Many economists believe that this is temporary, and so yeah. we'll get to a place next year where we're back to normal in terms of inflation. So if he's able to shepherd that, make sure that that, happens uh you know that we're in a good place we're already in a good place with jobs the last job report that came out last friday was actually really good really positive for biden we're at i think um 
five, uh, 5.1% um, unemployment. We're basically where we were right before the pandemic started yeah. as far as employment goes. So we've basically kind of recovered all of those jobs that were lost um, in Q1 of 2012. So I, that's uh, piece of the equation looks good. So it's really managing the inflationary impacts and the supply chain impacts, um, which are, I think, uh, have a huge impact on the economy as a whole, right? Because if there's um, limits on goods and services and there's shortages, um, that has a ripple effect through the economy. So that has to be resolved. The holiday season, I think, is going to have a big impact. Yeah. If you can't get what you want for Christmas and there's nothing on shelves and Amazon ain't delivering on time, I think that's going to have another big impact on just people's well, mood. Well, and it's right already now. having an impact, right? So um, a lot of the traditional Black Friday sales that retailers rely upon have been moved up uh, because of shortages. So a lot of these retailers started having these flash sales for Black Friday, like last week, some of yeah. them are having this week, uh, because they don't want to have them just at one time all at once because they're afraid that they're not going to have the product to be able to, to yeah. meet the demand. And so they're spreading it out um, to try to uh, accommodate demand that way. So it's already having an impact. And Jin Saki making fun of that, Jin Saki from the podium, I miss when that. Peter with, with, Ducey asked oh, okay. her, about supply chain problems and Christmas, and she kind of quips, ah, yes, the great treadmill uh, delay of 2021, kind of as a joke that, okay, if you can't get your treadmill Christmas Day and you get it a week later, is that really a a tragedy? I don't think that's the right way to look at that. Yeah. And I don't think... I, don't I, think, I think she needs to be careful about coming across as dismissive or yes. condescending. Yeah. Yeah. And the fact that, you know, gas is up over three bucks a gallon. That, yeah. That I, has impacts it on, does. on people. I, it just feels like the Biden team. And there's a, a psychological impact, right, to seeing gas constantly at over $3 yeah. a gallon daily. Um, you know, it it does impact habits marginally, depending on what income level you're at. Um, but even so, there's just that psychological impact of seeing that and, and having to um, you know, I think incorporate that into your spend habits yeah. and, you know, budgeting, household budgeting. It, and it, Biden really tanked out from a ratings perspective after Afghanistan. Yeah. Is there anything he can do to recover that? Well, I think he can. And that's what I said, I think last podcast, the problem with Afghanistan was it was the catalyst for his ratings yeah. drop. I mean, that's really what started it all. And then it was just one piece of bad news yep. after the next from that point on. And he was never able to recover because there was no really good news after that. Because if you look at pre-Afghanistan, I mean, he was doing really well ratings-wise. Yeah. I mean, he was in, you know, the mid-50s, I mean, about as well as you could, a uh, president could expect to do in the um, current era. And yeah, so I, I, I think, um, you know, we might be on the precipice of seeing recovery or that downside um, halted because the good news on the job front, the fact the infrastructure bill passed, it gives him finally a legislative win that yeah. he can uh, run home with. Uh, and that's what he's been lacking this whole time because legislatively the news is all um, bad. It's about obstruction and ability to find a compromise and ability to come together for voting. Um, so that's been resolved on the legislation that matters most. I mean, if you take Afghanistan out, you head into the midterms with, hey, guys, I passed $2 trillion packages, yeah. one of them being an infrastructure deal that we've been trying to get done for 20 years. I mean, he could have something to run on 
in in the midterms or oh, something for Democrats I, to run off of. Yeah. But you got that big giant hole in the middle of it of Afghanistan, but that I don't know how he recovers. But from see, that. I, I mean, I don't think Afghanistan is going to be a midterm issue. I mean, I it started it it was the catalyst for you know his uh, drop in approval ratings, and and that's been a source of a lot of angst, but. I mean, I don't think when push comes to shove, that's not going to be issue that um, anybody's running I, on. I, I don't think the Afghanistan issue will be there at the midterms. But to me, a- Afghanistan is that moment where everybody said, uh-oh, this is not the Joe Biden I thought I was voting for. The Joe Biden that I was voting for would not have done that. Not saying we wouldn't have pulled out, but wouldn't have just gotten this this idea in his head that it was going to be this way. And even when people told him this isn't the right thing to do, which I think both Millie and another general said, no, I, I didn't tell him yeah. I was good with this. And just his all his total approach to it is I think what, what happened and where this will, will continue to be an issue is that's the point people broke from Biden. Because he didn't meet – people had expectations of him that he didn't meet with no. all of that at all, and no. that, that was a problem. So I, I do think he can turn around. I think that that was where people obviously began to have doubts, and those doubts continued to um, thrive and uh, And flourish. this whole empathetic persona he had built – all fell Wiped away, away. Yeah. Stand. That's the real damage he did to himself. This whole, the whole thing he had built when you know campaigning against Trump, who's a natural foil for that, all of that went away, and that's what I don't think he can recover from. No, I don't think so either. And uh, well, I mean, I, I do think. I mean, I, I, I should say I disagree with you slightly there. I do think he could possibly recover from that. I think there's other issues that could come into play where he could compensate for how he came across with Afghanistan and shore up the image people had of him prior to Afghanistan becoming the issue. So I think that could happen down the line. Um, But there are intervening factors as well that could hurt him. I mean, you have this caravan of immigrants that's making (laughs) its way up, which is becoming a right-wing foil. Um, So there's that. There's also the confusion over whether or not um, the families of that were separated at the border are going to be paid these sums, which is also thousand dollars, right? Um, which is very controversial, and it's interesting because when he was asked point blank about that, he said that's not happening. Yeah, there's um, been a lot of that. Yeah, and but yet um, there's other indications from the administration that that is happening. So that's confusing. I I, I think people want Biden to come out and make a statement on the border. Yeah, I mean. You can't really say there's no crisis or ignore it when basically a small city of Haitians shows up under a bridge in Texas. Right. That's that going to get – even if you don't follow politics or you don't follow the political story, that's going to get people's attention. And the Central American caravan has what, like 15,000, 20,000 people? It's another, it's another, it's another big, one big one yeah. that's headed up through Mexico. You, you can't just will this problem away. And right. sooner or later, you're going to have to acknowledge it in some way. Have you been – watching or listening or i guess how have you been following the the kyle rittenhouse trial i i've wanted to watch more of the trial coverage directly but i haven't been able to so i've mostly been watching it through the prism of uh news clips yeah um, commentators commentators online and on the radio uh so my so what i'm hearing is filtered through those lens yeah uh, but it is fascinating. This is a week of two trials. And so you have the Kyle Rittenhouse trial, who's been, and he became the cause to love by many on the right. Yeah. Um, Ricky Schroeder bailed him out of jail, I think. 
Oh, that's or contributed to that's, his legal fund that's or something. That's right. I forgot all about yeah. that. So you have that happen. There's also silver spoons. The uh, uh, Ahmad Arbor case. Um, that was the black man in Georgia who was uh, killed uh, by those two white men that just you know basically saw him walking and assumed he was up to no good and and attacked and killed him. That case is also happening this week, not getting attention from the far right because it doesn't fit their political no. agenda. And, no. So it's been interesting to watch the coverage of both um, outweighted coverage towards uh, the Rittenhouse case. But it's also interesting to see that that case is somewhat falling apart and there's been criticism of the prosecution yeah. and that they weren't really prepared. Um, because I guess, and you can probably expand upon this because, again, this is based on what I've heard, but some of the um, prosecution's witnesses have um, come across pretty well for the defense. Well, and- when you ask one of, the, one, of the, one of your witnesses, a prosecution witness, why did Mr. Rittenhouse point his weapon at you? And he says... Well, I was pointing a pistol at yeah. him at the time. <laughs> I think that was that the kind of explains that, that doesn't it? Here's, right. So I've, I've been following the Rittenhouse trial as closely as I can, and I just feel like I'm watching the wrong trial because I don't I don't understand what's happening, and it just feels like I'm coming with a whole different set of questions than what's being asked. Like, for example. The first trial that should take place in, in, in the Rittenhouse thing, in my opinion, is all the adults need to be on trial. Before we get to him, we need to start with, for example, his the, parents, the 20 year old boyfriend of his sister, I believe, who bought him the AR 15. You bought a 17 year old kid An a military grade assault rifle? Yeah. Why? What did you think was going to happen? How about his mom, for example, who drove her 17-year-old kid with a loaded assault rifle and dropped him off at the race riot? Some parenting there, yeah. Where is she in all of this? And I would love to hear from a Kenosha cop. How many Kenosha cops saw Kyle Rittenhauer with a military-grade weapon that night? Did any of them ask, hey, son, how old are you? Yeah. Do you have a permit for that? Why did the Kenosha police allow him to run around with a loaded AR-15 in the middle of a riot? Great question. Yeah. To me, those are the questions that we should answer first. And the thing I keep, I keep, keep looking at Kyle Rittenhouse and the question I keep having is, has anybody asked him, son, have you gotten any professional help? You took the lives of two people. Regardless if it was self-defense or not, you shot into a crowd, you shot and injured somebody, and you killed two people. And he had no business being there, acting as a vigilante. Like, he, there were police officers there. That's not his role. He has no business being there. This is another part. Why aren't we leaning into that? Is that all legal? I mean, a 17-year-old kid illegally obtained an AR-15 to go provide protection to a car lot for something he wasn't authorized to do, nor asked to by the owner of the car lot. Right. Uh, What I'm struggling with is Kyle Rittenhouse is going to get off on the murder charges because at the time that he fired the weapon, it is reasonable to believe he feared for his life. He had one guy hit him twice with a skateboard, was rising up to hit him again. He shot him. Another guy lunged at the, 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 the gun he had and actually, I think, grabbed on to the barrel. You can make a good faith argument that, hey, if he takes my gun from me, he's going to kill me. 
or kill somebody else. I think those things, as horrible as I find them, that nowhere in the law is the what did you do to contribute to that scenario, I think he gets off on on the murder things, on self-defense, and there's probably a path there that that's the correct verdict. Yeah. The things he's probably going to get convicted on is, number one, carrying an, un, an, an unlawful weapon. At 17, no, I, you can't have an AR-15. Right. And two is reckless endangerment. He fired into the crowd three times when he hit this one guy, I think, in, 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 in the arm. Now, that guy was pointing a pistol at him, but you're firing into a crowd? Yeah. It's just what, what gets me is this kid has been let down by almost every adult in this scenario. In his life, yeah. And it ended in the most tragic way. The it tragedy was all is the people that lost their lives. If he had not been there, I mean, that's what it is. The happened. second tragedy is nobody is going to tell this kid, and you had something to do with it. Yeah. And we need to talk about why did you go there that night? If, if, you've, if you have teenage sons, this makes perfect sense to me. You can totally see your son and his group of friends in their bedroom playing Call of Duty, whipping themselves up into we need to go defend property or whatever. You, you can follow the thought process of a young that. man that led him to that riot. Yeah. What I can't put together, where in the fuck were the adults in this? And where, why aren't they sharing some of this blame? I just don't, I just don't get it. This trial, this trial has impacted me and it, way more than I thought it would because it just makes me want to scream. That nobody, nobody's talking about nobody, that. This kid is going to be, he's going to be not convicted of murder, which is probably correct. I, I think self-defense does apply. What does he think after that? Does he think he did something good? Yeah, does, does this what, embolden him, encourage what, him? I mean, what, what are we doing when the main story isn't, 17-year-old gets his hands on illegal firearms and is empowered by adults to put himself in a spot where people lose their lives. Yeah. And I just, I just think we're missing the complete point on the Kyle Oh, that's being trial. completely obscured. And despite the verdict, whatever it is, that will continue to be obscured because the focus will be on him either being found guilty or um, b- basically getting off on minor charges. And, you know, people are going to continue to hold him up as some kind of hero and— I think the broader point you made will go unaddressed. I mean, the adults who I think facilitated this and who were uh, accomplices and uh, and all of this will not face any type of consequence, let alone they're not even facing the media scrutiny they should be no. getting. I mean, where were the Kenosha police? Yeah. So you mean to tell me if a if a protest turns into a riot in Kansas City, I can just walk around with a with a long the rifle. The police are just hands off and be like, okay, and do whatever this, you want. And if you look at Kyle Rittenhouse, he looks like he's 12. Oh, yeah. He looks younger what, than he actually is. What in is. the world? Don't, don't the police have some culpability here? You let a minor walk around with a goddamn assault rifle in the middle of a riot. Yeah, I mean, I, I do. I, I mean, I think that the police were just, I mean... Uh, lack of accountability across the board. I mean, they were there, they knew, and they just chose, uh, you know, a, a kind of hands-off approach. And right-wing media is is cheering this on. Oh yeah, Fox News is all in on he's gonna he's gonna get off, and and that's a completely justified verdict. I I, I do. If I was sitting on the jury from a legal perspective, I could get myself to self-defense. I don't agree with him being there. I agree that he had something to do with it. But at the end of the day, in this country, and I, I happen to agree with this, if somebody knocks you down and hits you twice with a skateboard, 
they're so, I mean, that, that's something you have the right to defend yourself. Yeah. I don't, I think we're focusing on the wrong thing and the right, the, the hard right media, how they're portraying this is, this is yet another reason not to trust institutions, specifically the legal institution, because all of this case is bullshit. They should Ugh. never have been up. That, that's not, no, that, that's not right. That has either. no basis in fact. I just don't. This, That's this, the whole reason we have a legal system is to get to the bottom, to the truth of yeah. when there are instances like this, situations that happen, to find out who's at fault, who isn't, and sort through all of that to find the facts. And the judge has been weird in this case, but again, we're going down these side rabbit holes other than saying, are we okay with this 17-year-old kid showing up to this right with an assault right? Nobody's even talking no. about that. And I just don't, I just find that incredibly hard to believe. Is that going to be the new norm now? I mean, <laughs> it's just... I guess. I mean, what kind of message does this send? I mean, why are, and uh, to your point, um, I mean, there should be like an outside investigation into the police department for not getting involved. They've in had this. no scrutiny put to no. them, as far as I can there tell. There hasn't been anything about having an outside investigation or audit or anything, but... And what about why aren't states looking at possibly passing laws to hold parents accountable in those cases where they facilitate a minor um, with an illegal gun going into a scene like that? I mean, so, they, they, there could be laws that are I, passed. I, I have that, no— On the I state have, level. I have no basis in knowledge of saying this except it makes sense that if you pulled all of the Kenosha Police Department that night and said, what's the worst thing— about that can happen to this crowd, it would be the amount of guns people are carrying with them, the amount of weapons in, in this crowd. That's what's going to cause a, a, a argument to turn into a fight and a fight to turn into a shooting. That's usually what does. Yeah. And I can't, I just can't fathom. And in seeing pictures of that kid in Wisconsin running around with that gun on him. And we don't think that's the problem. That's yeah. what I don't, that's what I don't get. Now, the 20-year-old who bought him the gun, I think he stands trial next okay. for, for buying it. So I don't think there's any way around those charges. But to me, that I, we're, just, we're just missing the point. We're not asking the right questions, I don't think. But like you said, again, the mother driving him there and dropping him off, I mean, she was a facilitator. I mean, she was— He's 17. An accomplice in that, yeah. She Is knew there, what— What I mean, in the world? <laughs> and you're right. Why wasn't she charged? Yeah. I mean, aiding and abetting, isn't that the definition? So in Texas, if the Uber driver drives you to get an abortion, they can be charged in right. that. But <laughs> mom can drop you off at the race riot with a fully loaded AR-15, and you're 17? And That's a very good No one's point. commenting about that? I just, it just shows, I think, again, that we've, we, we're missing the forest for the trees here. And I actually feel really sorry for that kid. Because yeah. I, don't, I don't know. <clears throat> He certainly didn't, wasn't crying when he was walking around a bar months after this happened with a shirt on that said free AF yeah. and trolling I, that he just seemed to be okay. Then I, I don't, I don't know. This whole, that whole thing just doesn't, just doesn't feel right at all. No. You had another topic that was happier. I thought we wanted to talk about before we, before we wrapped up. Oh yeah. I got too fired up on Rittenhouse. No. So there, uh, so for those that haven't been following, um, more and more of the um, Capitol Hill rioters, the insurrectionists, have been going through the legal system, being yeah. charged. So the heaviest sentence was handed down just this week. 
uh, New Jersey gym owner, former MMA fighter, um, <laughs> who had punched a police officer in the face on January 6th, Scott Fairlam, um, ended up pleading guilty, and he received 41 months in prison. This is the longest sentence so far, and it does stand out because most of the rioters that have been tried uh, have you know, received either probation or maybe, I think, yeah. a couple months at most in prison. So this, uh, you know, receiving over three years in prison is a big deal, close to four years. So that is good news because there's accountability there. Um, He and his wife, um, up until, like, the actual sentencing, um, did not express any remorse and had been pretty defiant in social media posts until the day that they were getting sentenced, and then they show all the remorse. Uh, so that story is happening. For those that haven't kept count, we're up to 657 uh, defendants um, who are being charged and prosecuted with various charges and working its way through the system. So that number has continued to grow. Um, some of it is good policing, but a lot of it has been um, crowdsourced in yeah. terms of um, Help social media salutes, helping yeah. to find these people. Um, now, granted, these people were idiots for the most part. They made it easy because they filmed themselves. <laughs> and, and, and They loved that, it. Yeah. In the moment, they thought they were doing the right thing. And I, again, it's a good reminder, you know, we're only um, a couple months out from the anniversary of January 6th, one year. And so I think it's good to be mindful as these prosecutions work their way through the system that we don't just let this just become another day and we just, you know, let it go into fade into memory because this was such a historic event. I mean, in terms of the level of attack, in terms of uh, our democracy being halted, an attack on the democratic process that we haven't seen before. And, you know, it's one for the history books. And we need to make sure that these people are held accountable for what they did, because we do have an active effort to whitewash the whole thing. Mm -hmm. There are members of Congress who are saying, um, you know, that these were um, just peaceful protesters, that this was all just there in a picnic. Or you have somebody like Tucker Carlson, who put out a whole special gaslighting um, Trump supporters by saying that this was a conspiracy. I'm just asking questions, Brandon. I'm just asking questions. All right. So, yeah, you have some people that want to blame the FBI and say the FBI and Secret Service, that they were the ones who did all that. So we can't let that become the argument that takes hold. Well, let me stop you in one place because it's driving me crazy. Then when is Congress going to slap Steve Bannon in fucking handcuffs? When are they going to stop fucking around and start arresting people? I mean, they should, and that's what the this um, special committee is supposed to do. Is this, you know, they're supposed to be able to um, enforce these subpoenas under you know the full force of the law. And so, Stephen I Miller went on Fox today and said, "Na na 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 boo boo, you can't get me." What what are we going to do if we don't start arresting people? Just shut the whole thing down. I mean, what's the point what's of the having point? a what's the point? Yeah, subpoena process. So, if, if it's Congress subpoenas me for some reason, I don't have to go. Right. Yeah, I know. I agree. I, they totally need to enforce it. Um, I did want to go back to Scott Fairlamb. So one thing that drives me crazy, and I know this is part and parcel of the world we live in, and grifting is the norm, and it's all about monetizing. <laughs> it's but expected this, now, isn't this it? This couple set up a GoFundMe to raise $100,000 because they are claim that they're, quote-unquote, political uh, uh, being politically persecuted. They've already raised $30,000, and it just boggles the mind that— How? Uh, I just— <laughs> Who gave them money? Uh, yeah. I don't— uh, Yeah, the January 6th thing, I, I have— I'm starting to fade quickly on 
the thought that that's going to turn into anything of substance. The only thing that gives me some hope is that it's the Dems' main political strategy for the midterms, it seems to me. I be. really do think – I hope something substantive comes of it and that they're able to do something because, I again, that – uh, is all that we can do. I mean, they should be willing to go as far as the law allows because that is the only way that we're going to be able to move past this and send a message that, A, this should never, ever happen again. Well, and, and you have to be tough. You have to enforce the law. You have to throw these people in prison. And if they refuse to appear, uh, <coughs> go after them. So the document dump from the National Archive should happen tomorrow. Yeah. Trump filed an appeal. I think they have until tomorrow morning. To, to stay or to say, nope, you can have that, which there is no legal precedent for no. the president not – the That's president a bunch has of no BS. ability for the national – it's just a bunch of crap. Yeah. So, But I wouldn't be shocked if that doesn't happen. I, I just have no faith that anybody is going to hold anybody accountable for anything. And the January 6th, if we don't hold people accountable for that, what are we fighting for at this point? Yeah. If we can't agree that that's something that we're, that is you that is worth getting to the bottom of, what is right? Do you think Liz Cheney's going to run for president if Trump runs just to be on the debate stage with him? I would love to see that. I mean, that's the speculation because she was in New Hampshire right yeah. this week. Uh, I mean, she has no chance in hell. She'd, I mean, in a but primary, how but, bad would she throw him? Oh, off I would stage? love to see that. She'd just rip. I it mean, nobody can out debate her, and I think that's the one thing that's so gratifying is she is willing to you know go up against uh, anybody in her party time and time again because she just literally doesn't care at this point. So the first thing that popped in my mind: if Trump and Liz Cheney are debating, how many minutes into the debate before Trump calls Cheney ugly? I think oh, that's his lead, isn't that's it? That's a given, right? I mean, that he's going to find some way. To her because she's a woman, but yeah. she's too ugly to even be considered. He'll find some sexist you know, yeah. way to, yeah. That's his only That's play. his MO. That's I, what he does. I hope that happens just to see her, just see how many grenades she can throw at him. And if the whole party goes up in flames, I think she's fine with that. Yeah, she's I don't think she cares too. at this point. I mean, it's... And she shouldn't. No. If, if you can't get right on January 6th, what what, what are you fighting for? right. The New York Times had this very in-depth that was interesting, like one of those like long-form articles where they went to Wyoming and interviewed various people throughout mm-hmm. the state and different communities. It was really fascinating for somebody like me who doesn't know Wyoming very well or Wyoming state politics, other than visiting once. Um, you know, and you know, you're talking about a deep red state, except for that. Uh, what's that community that a lot of the wealthy people live in? That uh, Grand Teton. Yeah, it? it's in the Grand Teton so, area. Grand Teton area. So that I county, say Bozeman, but that's Montana, right? Yeah, you're so right. There's one patch Teton of liberalism, is blue, and that's yeah. the only part of Wyoming that votes blue. And many of those people are crossing lines to vote for Liz Cheney. But it, they talked to all these people, and people have been involved in the party. And because you're talking about a little bit over half, only half a million people in the entire state, like it's small. It's retail politics. It's door to door politics, yep. even for a uh, congressional statewide race. And so I think her chances are very low in terms of coming out of that, just with her challenger and the political makeup of that state. But I think she knows that. And she's just, yeah. she's like, she's not going to change her tune. And I think in some ways she feels empowered to, you know, cause she's accepted the reality of, yeah, she knows, she knows. Brandon, I don't, you, I don't know if you know this, but Wyoming's a very violent state. Have you watched this show Yellowstone? They're constantly killing each other and they're bombing each other. And I guess if you're a cattle ranch sheriff or whatever they are, you could just go around shooting everybody. 
Huh. I so that show's been on my docket. I haven't seen it yet. I want to start it. I I've watched. There's a show on ABC called Big Sky about Montana. Oh God, yes. And, and that one is like crazy stuff happens. Yeah. It makes Montana to be out to be this hotbed like of like culty stuff. And well, no. So it's like there's like a human trafficking component. Oh, there's geez. just like corrupt sheriff that's involved in the human trafficking. And then there's this like ex cop and this private investigator that are able to um infiltrate the whole ring and it's it's weird i mean it's has a lot of different angles but. did you ever watch any of the new hawaii Five O shows i never got into the new ones uh, every time we watch one of these i'm like i had no idea hawaii was so violent <laughs> they're killing people left and right yeah, well, that's what you like about all these shows dealers? right they take what like the a locale yeah uh, so the, the new—it's it's kind of like with Stephen King, you know, all his stuff takes place yeah. in Maine. It's like I never knew Maine had this many weird had this things many going serial on. killers in it. <laughs> yeah, who, who knew? Hawaii Five-O, the latest edition, was on for ten years, and it's a long time. And uh, TV—it is. There, there's some stupid show, a TV network like Ion or something like that, that has Five-O Fridays. Oh, okay. And every time my wife works from home on Friday, she always has Hawaii Five-O in the background because she's like, it's the perfect background show. The scenery is all good. The cast is all pretty people, you know, going around Hawaii doing beautiful things. And, and the plot, it's just the same show over and over and over yeah. and over and over again. So if you miss something, it really doesn't matter. You always kind of know what's happening with the show. Right. I think there's something to be said for shows like that. Yeah, I mean, they're they're calming to a degree, right? I mean, I th- shows like that, I can appreciate having those on the background that just have something, you know. Are you, are you a uh, noise in the background guy or do you have to have quiet? No, I have to have noise in the okay. background. That's typically why I've like worked from coffee shops or co-working yeah. spaces. And if I'm at home, I'll have to be listening to a podcast in the background yeah. when I'm working or something. Yeah. yeah. I'm more of a quiet person. If I really need to concentrate, if TV is on, I'll gravitate to watching TV all the, all the uh, time. Okay. See, it depends for me on what's on TV. Like there's certain programs in the background that's fine. If it's something I really want to dial in, I can't have it on while I'm working or I'll be distracted. Can you do work. music while you work? Yeah, I can do music. Okay. I do, I do music a little bit better. Podcasts are good because it's like a conversation that you can just dip in and out of if you, yeah. if you have to. Have you, have you had any changes in your routine? Well, you've always worked from home. I have, yeah. So For that the last really, three and a half yeah. years, yeah. It's been so where my wife's had to find her background TV shows and, uh, and get okay. a routine a specific for yeah. that. You've been doing that for, for years. For a long time. Now, is your wife still working from home? Is that... Um, I think she's like two or three days a week. Oh, okay. So, Brandon, if somebody came to you with your dream job, I mean, like, gave you a blank piece of paper and said, write your job description, and down here, just write how much money you want to make. But it's in an office every day, and it's north of the river. You're going to have a 35-minute commute. Uh, I'd really have to... Uh, I'd, I'd have to think about that. Again, blank piece of paper. Write the description... And down here, write your salary. So I, I, I literally could write oh, what others. It's eight to five every day in the office. We're old school. That's the way okay. we write. Could you do that? Uh, <laughs> I mean, I, I, at the end of the day, if it's literally I get to write my salary, then I could, I probably would. I mean, I would hesitate a little. I would, but I probably would and decide I'm going to do it for so many years before. Let me ask. Let me ask you this question: What percentage increase over the salary you currently make today would you have to have to go to the office five days a week? That is um, at least a hundred percent increase. So you'd have to double. Yeah. Really. Yeah. Man, you're really 
You really like working from home. I do, yeah. No, I, I've become used to the flexibility, and I love to travel, so it gives me that true. flexibility. That's true. When you throw the travel stuff in, that does that does skew it. So, You're right. Cause yeah. you, there ain't no going to Italy on, on a, no. a last-minute ticket buy because you got to be in the office from 8 to 5. Right. Now, there, I mean, there again, there is a price to where I would be able to be like, okay, I'll conform sure. and do it. But, but, yeah, I mean, it has to be substantially higher than what I'm making now. I mean, it, it can't be... You know, a mirror like 25, 30, 40%. Like it needs so you to be... probably look at like PTO and stuff very differently. Yeah. Because it's like, I could, if there's, there's an internet connection, I'll just work. I can work from anywhere. Doesn't and, matter. And as it stands now, like as long as I do my hours each week, I can uh, to- I, I, uh, you know, be able to um, toggle those as necessary. Like I yeah. can front load my time earlier in the week rather than later. As it stands right now, I work typically kind of four day weeks and have Fridays off because I front load sure. know, ten hour work days. Yeah. Uh, so I like having that flexibility, and so it's that's difficult to give up as well. That's the biggest thing with millennials. I finished my task. Why do I have to stay here? Yeah, I don't. I don't get I it. Totally agree with I, it. I yeah. did what I need to do. Why? Why am I sitting in this office another three hours? Right, and so many offices are going to either fully remote or flex where they're giving you that option. Like you can um, work in the office a couple days a week, work from home a couple days a week at the very least. And so I think at least providing some type of option like that is going to become the new norm because I think at some point we're just going to expect it. It's going to become ingrained as an expectation. If you're trying to recruit people and you have no remote option, that's just, people are just going to be like, there's just no way I'm going to do that. So, all right. I think that's our hour. Thanks, Brandon. Thanks, Greg. Thanks for listening to Two Men in the Middle. Make sure to give us a five-star review wherever you get your podcasts. Check out our website at twomeninthemiddle.com. Drop us an email at twomeninthemiddle at gmail.com or tweet at us at Two Men in the Middle. We'll see you next week.